Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Ben Cohen with us, the hot hand. Ben, have you ever seen someone have the hot hand and not be positive about it? In what way? Well, uh, being positive as opposed to being negative. Oh, uh, uh, well, I mean, it's uh, a good question. I haven't thought about that before. I mean, I, I, I think everyone like loves having the hot hand. I mean, it, it, it would seem to me... Um, uh, it's like one of those times that, um, you know, there's almost nothing negative about it. But, I mean, if they went in with an attitude of, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this today, uh, it's not going to happen, is it? Oh, no, I think that's totally right. I mean, I think you have to be willing to embrace it. Although I, I will say it, it sometimes arises when you least expect it. I mean, one of the things about not being able to tell when you are about to get hot is that, Sometimes it just happens. And so um, in the book, I write about um, the hottest game of Steph Curry's life. It happened um, against the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden a few years ago. And there was absolutely no way that he would have been able to predict that that would be the night that he gets hot. So the night before his team gets into a fight, uh, he probably should have been suspended. The problem was that he was actually too small to do any damage in a fight with NBA players. And so for his entire life, his height had been his one improbable disadvantage. Uh, and for this one night, it actually works to his advantage. So instead of getting suspended, he gets fined $35,000. And I have to say, like, never in the history of basketball has someone been so lucky to lose so much money. Because what happens when uh, he lands in New York is that his team, there are enough players who are suspended on his team that they really have no choice but to unleash Steph Curry that night. And yet still, even with suspended teammates, even with his team's entire game plan consisting on getting him the ball, even though he played all 48 minutes in the game that night, he still would not have expected this to be the night because something weird happened on their way to the game that night. Steph Curry, they're, they're always three buses that leave the Golden State Warriors team hotel. Steph Curry is always on the second bus. But on this night, for some reason he can't remember, he misses the second bus and he has to take the third bus. And what happens when the third bus pulls out of the hotel? It gets pulled over by New York City cops uh. on the way to Madison Square Garden. And so he's late, he's rushed, he is on his, a bus that's not normal, and the, and the bus that he is on uh, has gotten pulled over by the cops. He rushes through his warm-up routine, and then he scores 54 points. Wow. The greatest shooting night that he ever had. So, like, if he had gotten to the garden that night and said, like, this is not the night. I mean, what am I even doing here? Like, I, I just lost $35,000 this morning. I was on a bus that got pulled over. Like, why don't I just go back to my hotel room and take a nap? I mean, who knows what, what might have happened. And so um, I think there's a real optimism here, which is that, like, you never quite know when it's going to strike, and you sort of have to just be willing and able to take advantage of it when it does. You use Shakespeare as an example. Tell us about that. Well, it's another example of not knowing when inspiration is going to strike because uh, Shakespeare's secret weapon was the plague. At his time, that's right. It's, 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 it's oddly timely right now. I did not plan that. Um, but, um, you know, the plague was like the single most powerful force that shaped Shakespeare's life. He probably should have died from plague when he was a kid. His his parents had lost two children to the plague earlier, and the plague swept through um, his town in England uh, when, when, when he was a baby. And, and in those days, like if you were an infant and the plague swept through, like 
whether you lived or died was really just a matter of chance. It was it was actually like less than chance. It was it was like flipping a, a, a coin um, that was like weighted towards heads and betting your life on tails. It would, the, the odds were not good, and yet he survived. Um, the plague is also in Romeo and Juliet, which I think most people do not realize, but it's actually what turns the most famous love story ever told into a tragedy. So he takes advantage of it then. And then in 1606, uh, after two years of not writing anything, the plague comes through England again, and Shakespeare is essentially quarantined himself. And over the next two months, some scholars believe, either way, a very, very short amount of time, Shakespeare rips off King Lear, Macbeth, and Anthony and Cleopatra, which is just one of the great runs in the history of literature. And so, you know, Shakespearean scholars used to believe that he was sort of a metronomic writer. He wrote two plays a year. Now, the problem with Shakespeare scholars is that they're not exactly statisticians. They, they came to that uh, mathematical breakthrough by taking the total number of plays he wrote and dividing them uh, by the number of years over which he wrote them. So if he wrote 24 plays over 12 years, he, they said, okay, Shakespeare wrote two plays a year. The problem is that that is not even remotely true. Shakespeare was a streaky writer. He ran, he, he ran hot and cold, and he wrote in streaks. And this streak, the great streak of his life, was actually the product of the plague. And so, like, you know, the, you never would have expected that, right? I mean, the, the plague year being like an advantage, almost like a blessing in disguise, it sounds kind of crazy, but it's sort of what happened. Ben, let's talk, if we can, about science. What are they doing about this? I mean, you would think they'd be all over it. They are. I mean, scientists, psychologists, economists, they have been studying this phenomenon of the hot hand for, for almost 40 years now. It all started with this classic paper that was published in the 1980s. And what made it a classic, what really like part of the canon of behavioral economics, is this very counterintuitive conclusion, which is that there is no such thing as the hot hand. Now, something kind of amazing happened after this paper came out. It was written by these brilliant scholars, these psychologists at Cornell and Stanford, including the great Amos Tversky, I mean, maybe one of the smartest people, you know, in the history of the planet. I mean, everyone who ever knew Amos Tversky said that there was a test named after him, an intelligence test, and the test measured the rate at which you realized that you were not as smart as Amos Tversky. I mean, he was just this brilliant mind, and he's one of the authors of this original paper of the hot hand. But when they published it, it was so unbelievable that many people just refused to believe it. So these, 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 psycho- these psychologists and these economists who came along, what they said was that, it's that there's actually no such thing as the hot hand. It's simply a, 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 an example of seeing patterns in randomness, seeing patterns where they don't exist and then inventing causes to explain them. It was this very easily digestible example of a cognitive bias, our minds playing tricks on us. And that's sort of how this whole field, this literature about the hot hand, started. That was 35 years ago. There have been hundreds of papers about the hot hand since then. I've read all of them. I've printed them all out. They are in binders in my small New York City apartment right now, taking up way too much space. But um, it is it, that paper alone sort of spawned this whole field, and, and scholars have been looking for the hot hand ever since. Momentum, you talk about, is a critical factor in a lot of things, elections, you name it. I, I agree with that. Yeah, no, I think it's it's this it's it's a force, and um, I think part of what happens um, when you're hot, when you have momentum, is that resources become available to you that weren't available before, right? It's not just things in your control; 
it's things beyond your control too. And so, um, you know, in the book I write about a movie director, and when you're, you, you imagine like if you're a Hollywood director and you're hot, like suddenly money comes at you. Actors want to work for you. Screenwriters want you to make, uh, make their movies. And so um, that is, I think, some of the power of the hot hand, sort, sort of this idea that success begets success. And I think that like that is sort of the fundamental idea behind momentum as well. It's amazing work that you've got. It's called The Hot Hand. We'll take calls next hour with Ben Cohen. Perhaps you've got stories you want to share or questions for him as that. How can people use this to their advantage in everyday life? I think it's just a matter of, of, of recognizing when a hot hand is available and when it's not available. And to me, the crucial distinction is the one of control. So when we think that we are in control of our own situation, when we have agency of, over our own lives, we think that we can get the hot hand. And so, you know, we have control in basketball. The ball is in our hands. We are the ones who are taking the shot. But when we understand that uh, we, are, we are not in control, we're actually uh, at the mercy of chance, those are the times when it's actually really important to, be, to believe and behave as if you believe uh, that there is no such thing as the hot hand, because behaving and believing otherwise can actually be dangerous. It can be costly. Mm-hmm. It can backfire, and it can burn you a little bit. So in the book, I write about investing, and I write about farming, which I think is actually a lot like investing, and it's, it's not like basketball. I mean, I think that farming and basketball are very different. In basketball, a hot hand is possible. In farming, you really don't want to like bet your farm on a belief in the hot hand, because you can lose everything. So um, that idea of control is really important. It's really important to recognize when you should chase patterns and when you should maybe fall back and trust principles instead. How would you recommend people handle this current crisis, Ben, where most people feel as if they have no control over what's going on? Stores are closing, bars are closing, everything's closing. the hardest part of it. And I think that's like that, um, you know, a lot of the psychologists who have studied the hot hand they, they're studying the hot hand not because they love basketball, but because they're into human behavior and because what they really want to know is how do we make decisions? That what they're really studying is, is judgment and decision-making. And what these brilliant minds and genius scholars have found is that judgment uh, and decision-making under uncertainty is really hard for humans. I mean, in the book I write about um, randomness, how randomness paralyzes the human mind, and it's very hard for us to wrap our brains around it. And that manifests itself in all types of different ways. But I think fundamentally, that's what we're dealing with here. We are, we're trying to make decisions and we are trying to wrap our minds around a situation that like, we just don't know all that much about and, and everything is so uncertain and we're not good at dealing with uncertainty. It's a very human feature. A hot hand too for, let's say, a, a gambler. That begins to roll, but you don't have to be a gambler to just have a hot hand. That's right, and, and there's actually um, another bias that comes into play when you're gambling. So I, it's actually easiest to understand through basketball. So you walk into a basketball arena, and, and you happen to be there on a night when Steph Curry makes three shots in a row. Everybody in the arena thinks that he's making a fourth shot. That's the hot hand. But if you walk into a casino, and if you go to a roulette wheel, and you see the wheel land on red three times in a row, what research actually shows is that most people will bet on black. Right, because they figure the odds are it's going to get, it's going to pop up. That's right, and that's not the hot hand. That's called the gambler's fallacy. And 
that's a really interesting phenomenon because it's essentially the same thing, right? It, except it's a different outcome. It's three things happen, and then do we bet on the streak to continue or do we bet on the streak to end? And again, I go back to that issue of control. When we are in control, we think that we can get hot. When we understand that we're at the mercy of chance, when we are literally in a casino standing at a roulette wheel, we know that, like, you know, maybe we should not believe in the hot hand. And the weird thing about all this is that people who believe in the hot hand also believe in the gambler's fallacy. They seem mm-hmm. to be like fundamentally opposite principles, and yet we can play with both in our own minds. And so that's one thing to think about the next time you go to a casino. Like you will see all of these numbers and these patterns that pop up on like the electronic scoreboards by a roulette wheel, and they'll show the last 10 numbers, and they'll show the breakdown of red and black. And really what they are trying to do, the casinos, is they're just trying to make you look for patterns where they might not exist and to seek order in chaos. They're trying to overload your brains and have your mind play tricks on you. And so, um, you know, my best advice would probably be to not play roulette. But um, uh, if, you, if you have to play roulette, which, you know, I uh, uh, feel the need to as well whenever I'm in Las Vegas, it's, it's, these are random independent events. They are spins of the wheel. And it's probably best to not think that you're hot or, uh, or that you're not hot. Where does probability fit in here, Ben? It's all of it. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's how we have discovered in recent years that there actually might be such a thing as the hot hand after all, because this is not just a question for uh, economists and psychologists. It's also a question for mathematicians and statisticians who, who play with probability theory all the time. And so um, there's been some really recent work, and it's actually why I wrote the book, is because there's this whipsaw narrative where we think the hot hand is real, because that is what our intuition says, and then we are told that it's not real. And in recent years, we've realized that maybe it actually is. And it's because of this very subtle statistical bias that even some of the world's brightest statisticians had missed for about 35 years. It was discovered not too long ago by these two young American economists in Europe who looked at this very old problem in a new way, and they were able to find something that nobody had seen before. And what they found was that we're actually not crazy to believe in the hot hand. And it all has to do with a mathematical quirk that is very, very uh, subtle and complicated. And uh, I have to think very hard about it before uh, I write about it, let alone try to explain it um, to all of your listeners. So I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to say the, the math has been rubber stamped by, by, by the smartest people in math and the top economic journals. But it all has to do with probability. And that's the cool thing is that this is a question that has been studied by some very smart people for a very long time in, in, in very different fields. And they've come to different answers, and I think it, they're both perfectly reasonable. I think that's the fun of it, is that you get to play around with this idea and toy around with it for yourself and see where you land. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.